Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, and I'm really excited to welcome Robert Elmer to the show today. Robert Elmer is the editor of Piercing Heaven, Prayers of the Puritans, and Fount of Heaven, Prayers of the Early Church, the first two books in the Prayers of the Church series from Lexham Press. He's also the author of more than 50 books of Christian fiction, devotion, and apologetics for younger readers as well as adults. He and his family live in Linden, Washington, and I'm looking forward to our conversation on prayer and the prayers of the past. Welcome, Robert. I'm really excited you're here to chat with me about prayers of the past and about Puritans. So everybody who comes on this podcast, I ask two sort of get-to-know-you questions. And my first question for you is, what's your favorite book or author from more than 50 years ago? Well, thanks for having me, Grace. I, I love those kind of questions, <laughs> but I, I have the hardest time answering them because for me, Favorite is kind of a, a moving target. So, uh, I mean, ask me again tomorrow and I'd probably have a different answer for you. Um, but you don't have to limit yourself to one. You can okay, kind of okay. <laughs> give me well, several. <laughs> no, I'm going to cheat a little because the book that comes to mind is not technically a book from more than 50 years ago, but it's an updated classic um, with writings from the first, second, and third centuries that I've loved for years. It's called You Give Me New Life. Mm-hmm. by a guy named David Hazard. And I, and I picked up a copy of this book shortly after it was published, about uh, 20, 25 years ago. So it's out of print now, but it's not long. It's about 150 pages. But the reason I love it so much is because it pulled together the devotional writings by um, a collection of people like Ignatius and Polycarp, Justin Martyr, Cyprian, those kind of guys. Mm-hmm. And it just opened my mind and my eyes to all these early saints in a way that I had never known before at the time. And mm-hmm. it really changed kind of my perspective. And I think it influenced some of the writing that I do today. And I, I just love that book. And I've read it over and over through the years. It's been a real encouragement. So um, you give me new life. Okay. That sounds really interesting. And, and it really, uh, Similar experience, I think, for for me too, but for a lot of people, not with that book, but when you start reading um, the the voices, especially from the the early church, and you realize both how distant you are in time from them and how much they still speak to you as you yeah. read them. And there's something really profound, especially about the first time encountering that yes. that I love. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, my second question for you is, which literary character do you most identify with? Okay, that's a good one. Um, and I wonder if this has been said before in your podcast. Um, I'm thinking, am I the third or the 50th person who says this? But I'm thinking maybe how about Bilbo Baggins? Oh, you're not the first person to say it, but you know what? It's a classic answer. I think yes. he's so relatable. Okay. But ex- tell, tell me why you relate to Bilbo Baggins. Well, okay, because I am, I am fond of the comforts of home and hearth. And I don't always like the mess that dwarves create. Um, <laughs> but I do have an adventurous streak, um, even though I don't know if it's from, from my mother's side. And for Bilbo, that was the Took side, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, although um, 
I like his cousin I, Pippin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, maybe maybe it is from my my mother's side because both of my parents are from Denmark, and um, they ventured out after they got married. They learned a new language. Um, they came to the United States with very little, so kind of the the quintessential immigrant story. Uh-huh. And they started the new life here, and I and I guess that's pretty adventurous. That's pretty adventurous. That sounds Tukish to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I see I see life as an adventure and a chance to grow, just like Bilbo. Um, although it's always nice to get home to a, a hot cup of tea. Definitely. Yeah. Well, um, you, uh, I, I've been looking at your collection. You have two collections of prayers that have come out recently with Lexum Press, and um, the one that I first encountered and the earlier one is called piercing heaven prayers of the Puritans. And, um, I wanted to talk to you a bit today about the Puritans, why pray with the Puritans who are the Puritans and Mm -hmm. kind of what uh, this collection has meant to you. And so first I I'd like to kind of ask for those of us who may not uh, quite recall their high school American and English history. Right. Um, what is a Puritan? Okay. So, you know, it's a learning curve for me too, because I come from this <clears throat> as a, as a writer and a, and an editor, and I'm not a Puritan expert. Um, the folks at Lexham press filled in a lot of those blanks for me, but here's what I learned. The, the Puritans were those believers who um, pretty much sought to carry out the Reformation forward mm-hmm. and purify the church, hence the name. Um, and it was primarily the Church of England throughout the, the 1600s into the 1700s. And it ended up being from both sides of the Atlantic, because that was obviously the time when the colonies were being settled. Mm-hmm. So it spread that direction um, but these followers of the movement were looking for the purity of a scripture-based worship, mm-hmm. um, doctrine, prayer. And I guess that would be opposed to the, the government-mandated um, formats and instructions for worship, which they ran afoul of uh, lots of times. So what set them apart, as I understand it, was their approach generally to work within the church um, as compared to those who would separate from it. Mm. So they and, weren't separatists, which is kind of a, a common right. misconception, right? Yeah. Right. They were not separatists. Um, they were they were insiders for mm-hmm. the most part, even though as they kind of dug in their heels to government mandates, they uh, got in trouble for that. And so they found themselves outside of things sometimes, but not by their choice. Mm-hmm. So they held to scripture-based worship over tradition. They didn't totally reject set prayers and worship. Um, and I guess when you think about it, though, the Puritan mindset was uh, a huge influence on the early days of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, our constitution, our national psyche, the way we look at our country um, was very much influenced by the Puritans. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are there are a lot of other distinctives that have to do more with kind of the finer points of Calvinist theology and church practice, but that's that's kind of the gist of it. Yeah. So I have to confess here, and you may already have deduced this um, because I study medieval literature. I'm a medievalist. I'm not uh, naturally drawn to a natural fan of Puritan writing and theology. Um, and uh, so... <laughs> 
I think it was C.S. Lewis who wrote that both Puritans and humanists who they were often in combat with in that time, not in literal combat necessarily, sometimes in literal combat, but at odds with in that time period, the humanists um, both were united by a, uh, a passionate dislike of everything medieval. So I kind of feel a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> I feel a little bit protective of my medieval friends, but um, <laughs> no, but um so what I'm interested in is uh, hearing more about your ex- your experience of loving and reading through these prayers. Because mm-hmm. um, I think for many of us, uh, it's not just me as a medievalist, but many of us read something like, say, uh, Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in... Um, in undergraduate or whatever, and kind of are like, oh my goodness, this is so intense. Yeah. Um, what drew you to the prayers of the Puritans in particular? Like what was your story as you were working on this project? Yeah. Well, first of all, Jonathan Edwards, was he, is he actually a Puritan or did he kind of come on the tail end of things? I don't know. He's at the very end, the very end of of, uh, Puritanism. Yes. I don't know if he was an honorary Puritan or if they just was able to, anyway, the, the book, um, the, the first book that we did with um, Lexham Press, Piercing Heaven was actually a longtime dream of, of my editor there, Hmm. uh, Jesse Myers. Um, he was a fan of the book, uh, classic book called Valley of Vision, mm-hmm. and they wanted to do something similar, but in their own way. Mm-hmm. So Valley of Vision, the classic book, right? Uh, and Jesse was acquainted with some of the work that I'd done in updating another spiritual classic, which I edited a few years ago called Practicing God's Presence, which was a, a modern language update of the practice of the presence of God by L- Brother Lawrence. Mm. So he had read that and he said, oh, Robert, you've done that kind of thing before, right? Um, and I have this vision for uh, doing a, another book with Puritan prayers and can you do it? And, and I've done an, even another uh, update, updated language book um, called Rediscovering Daily Graces, which was classic voices on the sacraments mm. from a Protestant, Protestant perspective, mm-hmm. but um, using updated... Um, Updated writings uh, by Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon, Wesley, uh, Andrew Murray, those kind of guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I'd done it before, and I I just jumped on. That sounded like a great project to me, um, but um, not as much of a contemporary uh, message Bible kind of style, which I'd done before, but uh, just a really careful rendering or updating of some of the the writings from from these Puritans. Mm. Um, So we put our heads together, we created our own version, and um, the title, uh, Piercing Heaven, by the way, comes from a a Puritan named Thomas Watson, Mm. Um, lived in the mid-1600s. He said that the prayer that is most likely to pierce heaven is the one that first pierces one's own heart. Mm. That's, anyway... That's beautiful. I love that. Yes. And did you feel like you, as you were compiling these prayers, did how did you feel like working with, I mean, you've, you have had a lot of history now than working with these older texts of Christianity and just making them more accessible for folks. Um, how did you feel like working with these Puritan prayers? Did it feel different than working with Calvin or Luther or did it were there echoes and resonances? How did you, how was that experience? I think, I think both and, 
Uh-huh. Um, yeah, Th- there were there was echoes and resonances, sure. Um, but what really struck me um, was kind of setting us. I guess I, I came to it um, thinking that I had an advantage, not not being a Puritan expert, because yeah. I didn't I didn't come with a preconceived notion that well these guys are all dour um, traditionalists and they're just really um, killjoys and really tough people. Uh, I didn't come with that kind of preconceived notion. Yes. I just came at it and said, well, where are the prayers? Show me the prayers, and I'll look them up and and do the digging and. I'd, take them at face value. Yes. Um, I like that too, because it pushes back against uh, the box that we put Puritanism in very often. Mm -hmm. It's really not helped by their name. It's such a, a, you know, a a joyless sounding kind of name as we conceive of it today. Right. 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 But um, it's a, a helpful uh, that fresh outsider perspective is a helpful one, I think, when we approach them. Um, I appreciate that. I I was, again, thinking about this reading. Uh, I was looking up. I remembered C.S. Lewis saying something about it, and that was where I had talked about him before with the – he was talking about the humanists. But mm-hmm. um, I, I looked up where I had seen it before in his uh, studies in medieval and renaissance um, studies – that's can't be the title. That seems to be a typo in my notes. Um, but <laughs> that he says, we must picture these Puritans as the very opposite of those who bear that name as young, fierce, progressive intellectuals, very fashionable and up to date. They were not teetotalers, um, bishops, not beer were their special aversion. Um, they were nearly always the same type of people as the humanists, the young men in the movement, the impatient progressives demanding a clean sweep. Um, and so this, reforming impulse is I think what I'm really getting out of that, that we must kind of keep them in context and in conversation with that reforming impulse. Yeah. Um, They were, I mean, they were very energetic. What what really struck me. And as I looked at these prayers, they were not um, old retired guys. Yes. Yes. They were energetic. They were emotional. They were heart shaking they were they weren't casual in the sense of being flippant flippant um i guess you could probably guess that part but they were um they were praising god from a i mean from deep deep humility from a mm. position position that way um plus they took on every aspect of life there was just full of life mm-hmm. um it it kind of shocked me it's like uh, i didn't know what to expect when i jumped into the project but but the fact that they were so like I said, energetic, sold out. They were on their knees. Mm. They, they were holding nothing back. And um, and I guess when I was putting this together, I, I couldn't help um, feeling this almost uncomfortable contrast between their prayers and the kind of prayers I might offer today, you know? Um, so, yeah, it was a challenge for me, but it was a good one. Did you, um, so did you find yourself praying their prayers alongside them as you compiled this and feel like you were being changed then as you put it together? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it was almost, I was going to say embarrassing, but not really. Cause when I started praying their prayers, it's like, Whoa, I don't know if I've gone this deep before. <laughs> this is scary. This is dangerous. Uh Oh, warning, warning. Um, because they were, uh, you know, 
they were deep. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm hearing from people who have read the book that say they start out their day with a single prayer from the book and the, as a sort of a kickstart to their own prayers. And one, one, one older man even told me that he, he says, um, Lord, accept this prayer is from my own heart. Mm-hmm. So, and when I hear that, I feel like, okay, that's mission accomplished there because mm. um, uh, that was the intent of the book. I mean, it's not the kind of book that you sit down and read cover to cover in a single setting. I mean, it's not written with that in mind at all. Yes. But it can be read and prayed over in smaller chunks, everyday chunks. And um, yeah. So can you uh, tell us a little bit about some of the major contributors in this book? Like some of the people, because I I know I was looking through it and was super interested because a lot of them are people I haven't heard of before. I haven't encountered before. It's not like some of them are some of, uh, some of the folks are, are people whose names are around, but a lot of them aren't. And that was a really interesting thing too. Um, for me, could you tell us a little more about them? Sure. Sure. Yeah. It, um, piercing heaven has, has prayers from 31 men and one woman. And um, a few of them have names that you might have heard. Most of them probably not. Uh, I I did a, a list of short bios in the back of the book, and I learned a lot in the process, of course. But some of my favorites, um, Joseph Align, um, British pastor, traveled around England with the grandfather of John and Charles Wesley. Hmm. Um, but he got in trouble for not adhering to the Conformity Act of 1662, which we kind of alluded to before, mm-hmm. um, that was the law designed to kind of standardize church ritual at the time. So you do this prayer in this order, you follow this script, no deviation, and 2,000 pastors lost their jobs at the time for not lining up with the act. It was a big deal at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Joseph got into trouble with, with the Conformity Act. Richard Baxter was another pastor in the mid-1600s who also got in trouble with the law. And he wrote a couple of classics, uh, books that are still available today. Um, Lewis Bailey was a little bit earlier. He was born in 1575. He was the rector at St. Matthew's Church in London. And then he was a bishop but like many of those others, he was persecuted and he was put in prison for his Puritan views. And he wrote a book that deeply influenced John Bunyan, hmm. who you can loosely call a Puritan. Um, mm-hmm. John Bunyan himself, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, of course, and he spent 12 years in prison for his Puritan um, stand, I guess. But one of my favorites was a guy named Robert Hawker, H-A-W-K-E-R, Hawker. Um, and he was known for passionate preaching and a heart for the poor. And that doesn't line up with my view of what the Puritans were like. Yeah. He, was, he was down in the trenches and um, doing home Bible studies in his neighborhood with his wife, um, very much hands-on. In fact, he wrote um, a series of books called the, um, the Poor Man's Devotionals and Commentaries, which is a funny name. But basically, he wanted to write something that was very accessible um, to everyday people. And that's what it was. And it was one of Charles Spurgeon's favorite books. Mm. Spurgeon loved those books. He endorsed them and he talked about them a lot. So that was Robert Hawker. Um, and the one woman that's in the collection 
And I don't know if you could call her an honorary Puritan or what, um, but uh, Anne Bradstreet, mm-hmm. the first poet to ever have her works published in the British North American colonies, the first not, mm-hmm. um, of anybody. So she came to America in 1630 from England with her um, Puritan husband and a Puritan father. So um, was she a Puritan by association? I, I'm not sure about that. But her first poems were published in England without her knowledge. Really? I didn't know that. (laughs) Somebody just lifted the poems and said, hey, these are great. Let's publish them. (laughs) All right. Wow. They became very popular, obviously. But um, yeah, her first first, uh, poetry was published um, without her permission, without her even knowledge. Um, and it, the funny thing is, and another thing I learned in doing this book is that the the people really do cover a spectrum. Yes, they were not all the same. Um, most of them wanted to keep, like I said, the church pure from within, but they paid a price. Mm. And and some of them edged a little bit more toward the separatist movement. They never did cross over. Um, a few of them were able to bridge the gap. You know, kept their position. And managed to stay out of trouble away from the a few steps away from the law, but they all love the Lord with a passion. And you know, they are worth remembering. Yeah. It, I I love hearing their stories and hearing you describe your kind of wonder in encountering them because it reminds me of something uh just so important when we are reading and encountering the people of the past, which is that they lived and thought in just as uh, diverse ways as we do today, that we really shouldn't put them in boxes of our own making. So even something as like commonly uh, grouped as Puritanism, we all like pretty much any Christian has a feeling or a thought when you say Puritanism. And even that was a far more uh, diverse and uh expectation breaking movement of people than our own kind of ideas that we impose upon them. And how lovely that is to recall that um, these folks were pursuing Christ and really wrestling and thinking, and uh, they weren't just these kind of stiff upper lip kinds of folks. Yeah. And, you know, looking, looking back on these people, we always want to categorize them. You know, yes, what, yes. what, what, what kind of label can we put on them because they did this and this and they felt this way and they said that. But they weren't, from their perspective, they weren't like that at all. Yes. There was, there was not a Puritan club that they signed up for and it had 10 principles that they uh, adhered to at the time. There was, like you said, there was a, a spectrum, there was a variety, there was diversity in, within that group. And they all had different ways of approaching their ministries and their lives. And they all ended up in different, different, um, you know, they ended up differently. And some of them ended up in prison. Some of them ended up in Massachusetts. (laughs) Prison or Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, Okay. So I, when I was reading these, I had a a question, which was, um, how would they have prayed these prayers generally? Were they like journaled prayers? Were they communal or were they um, ever shared together or were they pretty private or maybe, maybe all those things, but I was yeah. curious about that. Yeah. In, in this volume, uh, based on the kind of research that I was able to do, the, the prayers I collected were pulled mainly from sermons okay. and some, some from books 
Um, most of them had been written down and then spoken in the course of a sermon or a presentation. And um, a lot of cases, the sermons were collected not long after the person's death mm-hmm. in a sort of a tribute volume, right? Um, and sometimes the volume was reprinted after a few years. Um, and typically in the 1800s, some of the, the church publishing places looked back, you know, let's look for some good material from, uh, you know, from a few years back and, oh, look at this. This is from a hundred years ago, but it's really good by Richard Hawker. And um, so they got reprinted then. And um, then fast forward to today and some of those volumes from the 1800s were scanned, posted and largely forgotten. And that's, where I got most of my material was in the scanned 1800 versions of what was originally presented in 1600. And the prayers themselves, interesting enough, um, sometimes they occur right in the middle of a sermon. You know, the guy would be preaching along and then all of a sudden, bam, he just (laughs) bows his head and he's, you know, oh Lord, da, 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 da. And he goes on for a couple of paragraphs and then he switches back to his sermon. Um, other times it'd be a little bit more formal. They'd, you know, be one of the typical, more what you'd expect at the end of a sermon, kind of summarizing the content of the sermon and, and pray about those sort of, that sort of thing. Um, but the ones that I enjoyed the most were the, the ones that were just so unexpected. Mm-hmm. And um, the fun part was just finding them. I love that. There is such a joy when you're reading these uh, old texts or books and you stumble upon these gems that mm-hmm. you're just like, oh my gosh, this is so impactful and beautiful and truthful. And um, there's nothing like that feeling. I love that. Yes. Um, how did you, uh, so you, you kind of anticipated my next question, which was how are you choosing the prayers to be included? You were searching and finding them. Um, but. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed the whole process. I yeah. Mean, the research was fascinating. I mean, who knew that so many um, 400, 500-year-old manuscripts uh, still existed and, and, and online? So, I mean, I, I started out with this list that Jesse and I, my editor and I, um, okay, these are the Puritans we're kind of going for. Mm-hmm. Um, go down the list. And I searched out some of the most obscure, forgotten sermon and book manuscripts you can imagine. Um, I mean, it was like panning for gold. Yes. Um, and some of them were really challenging to read because, A, the faded print quality. Yes. These, and bad these, scans, too. Oh, Sometimes yeah. Sometimes the scans are terrible. <laughs> Sometimes the scans would just kind of squiggle off in the middle and, and like somebody jerked the page off halfway through the scan. And, oh, I'm done with this. <laughs> <laughs> Try it. Uh, the old English script in in many of them, the page long sentences. You know, they didn't yes. know the meaning of a comma back then. No, nope. or, or or maybe they did, and they just loved the commas and just kept going. But anyway, the, then there was the antique grammar and the the vocabulary. But sometimes I had to to look up and say, what you know, they'd use the same word, but it's like uh, it's not the same. Yes, this is a trick uh, with people that I, I that I do with Middle English, where I'm like, okay, you think you know what it means, but really you always have to be contextualizing because even though it looks the same as our word today, it really ends up working really differently, right? I'm sorry, <laughs> I don't think you mean what you think you mean. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So. so yeah, what I tried to do was comb through um, hours and hours and hours of this. This was a long process. 
and I combed through the sermons and writings. And fortunately, some of them were, were scannable. I mean, I could look for keywords and phrases, and um, that would signal a prayer. Um, and I, I wasn't sure if anybody had done that before, but it was kind of like finding, you know, a, a diver deep underwater by noticing the bubbles on the surface kind of thing. So I would search for words like, amen, or, oh, Lord, or phrases like, I pray, or my prayer is, or that kind of thing. So um, the hidden prayers would eventually pop up, sometimes, like I said, in the middle of a sermon, sometimes at the end, sometimes where you would least expect them. And it would be anywhere from a couple sentences to several pages. And I just collected them, edited them, updated the language just a little bit to try and reflect um, contemporary usage. And, and that was a process in itself because yeah, I had to be very careful yes. um, to capture and preserve the original intent as closely as possible without going off on sidetracks that they did not intend. Yes, so um, and that's that part was, of respecting these writers as you collect yes. them. You don't want to just merely twist them into what you want to hear or what you think people want to hear. Yeah, which is quite tricky. That requires a lot of self-examination um, and checking your ego at the door. Right? I mean, right? Yeah, and I, I, I had to think. You know, I, I'm going to be on the cover of this book as the editor, but I'm not writing this stuff. This is not my, these are not my words. Yeah. I didn't come up with these prayers originally. And, and I, I really had to respect what they were trying to get at and how they were praying and their emotions and their, their intent. So that was, that was the biggest hurdle in this is uh, daily as I was going through the, the research to kind of bridle back my own agenda and just lay out what these people were saying and mm-hmm. what they were praying. So uh, in the end, it was, it was pretty satisfying, but it was a daily, <laughs> daily uh, uh, challenge. Totally. So the next book in the, uh, in this series of, of prayers from the past just came out, um, Fount of Heaven, which is prayers of the early church. And um would you want to share with us a little bit more about about that one and how that differed from combing through the Puritan prayers and uh, your experience discovering prayers that were even a thousand years earlier mm-hmm. plus than what you were looking at in your last oh, yeah. volume? <laughs> yeah. I am in love with this project. Oh, it was so much fun, but even harder um, to put together than the first book. Um, but Piercing Heaven um, was well-received, and it w- we were really happy with that. And so my editor and I thought it would be a good idea to put together, um, you know, a similar volume. And they even turned it into a series, the Prayers of the Church series. Um, so that was great. But, wow, there's a challenge. Um, prayers from the first, second, third centuries, a little bit of fourth century maybe. Um, and these church leaders were only separated from the first disciples by very few degrees of separation. I mean, in some cases, it was like interviewing someone who knew someone who knew the original 12 apostles. <laughs> very exciting stuff. Yes. Um, and, and so right away, we could see the value, but could we pull it off? Um, and what was, what was the most important things uh, for the early church to, to say back at the beginning? What were, they, what were they concerned about? That would be pretty valuable to know. Um, and 
they did pray about those things. So I went back on the research trail and I was looking for the earliest known books and manuscripts from people like Clement and Polycarp and Ambrose and Augustine, all those people. And um, fortunately, since I am not a Greek or Latin scholar, I did find that many of their earliest writings were translated into English, um, typically, again, into the 1800s by really good linguists. Um, but, of course, even then, because it was translated so a couple hundred years ago, the English still required some updating from the kind of language that we speak today. And our goal um, was to make it accessible, um, mm -hmm. basically. So we assumed that it was, if it was important enough for the early church to pray about, it might be important for us too. So those are things that we can't ignore. Um, and it was kind of like a, a, a time capsule of prayers. And we tried to make it the most relevant time capsule collection of prayers that we could create. Um, and, you know, the, the interesting part for me was that um, not every prayer came from a professional theologian or mm -hmm. a, a priest or a church leader. A lot of them did, but there were a few, and these were, I consider the kind of the gems of the collection. There was one, for example, um, a guy named Asonius, Roman, um, very simply just an early believer who happened to leave behind a, a personal account that survived. Mm. Imagine that after all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, um, his story was still there and he still had some prayers in there, in, in, including so he recorded those prayers and we, we um, pulled them into the collection. Um, and it, it turned out I was really pleased with it. It was just, I feel really blessed to have been able to work on something like that. Rediscovering those prayers, kind of mm -hmm. a, a labor of love. Um, so I'm hoping that readers would enjoy that one too. Do you have a favorite historical prayer that you often go to? Ooh, yeah, or a couple. You told, yeah. I know, you've read a lot of prayers, but um, is are there a couple that really you find yourself just repeatedly returning to? Yeah, you know, as a writer, I think my perspective is a little bit different, and and so there is one prayer that did catch my my heart. Um, I mean, it's it's hard, it, it, almost impossible to pick one that stirred me the most, but. Um, there's a, a guy named a pastor named Philip Doddridge um, mm. in piercing heaven. It, it kind of rocked me. Um, and I wrote it down here. It says, um, and though I might never know it while I live yet, I beg you, Lord God, let it be found at the last day that some souls are converted by these labors and let some be able to stand forth and say that by these, they were one to you. So, amen on that. I, I mean, imagine beautiful. having a long-term view of things and praying that God might be bring people into the kingdom as a result of what I say or do or write, even after I am gone. That's a, that's a writer's prayer. Um, so, I just say, wow, you know, that's that's sticks with me. Yes, that's um, – and so, so uh, fascinating that those – that that he was praying that and it, and it does end up in a volume hundreds of mm -hmm. years after his death. I mean, there you go. kind of marvelous, right? Yeah, it's an answer to prayer. Yep. <laughs> um, well, um, I think that we are drawing to a close, but um, I did want to ask you for people who are interested in following up, learning more about what you're up to, ongoing projects, where can they go online to find you? Uh, online at robertelmerbooks.com. 
R-O-B-E-R-T-E-L-M-E-R books with an S.com. And I, I list the new releases there and um, links to Amazon and all that good stuff. Great. Or they can go to the Lexham Press um, Lexham Press site, and they have probably the best way of, they have a discount on the books. I think it's even cheaper to, to buy it through the publisher than it is uh, to buy it through Amazon right now. So um, go to, um, boy, what's that web address? It's probably, probably LexhamPress.com, but um, anyway, L-E-X-H-A-M Press. And if they Google that, they can, they can find the books there too. Well, um, they're beautiful books and I'm thankful for that. They're accessible in a way that, um, I mean, we can find these prayers by digging, digging deep in things, but it's so hard to do that. So hard to figure out a way into that. And so I, I think it's really lovely that they are available in these volumes. So thanks for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, like I said, it's a labor of love and we just, <laughs> there's nothing better than being able to just immerse myself in these 500 year old manuscripts and find out what's, what's being preyed on today and, and including them in the collections. And it's, it's been great. I I've just loved it. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks again for listening to old books with grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. And if you'd like, you can find me online at Twitter, Grace Hammond PhD, or on Instagram at Old Books with Grace. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about this or any other episode or just general old books questions, which I always love to answer. You can also find me um, online on my Substack which is a monthly newsletter that goes out for free in which you can dive a little deeper with me into books of the past, especially medieval books. It's called Medievalish with Grace Hammond. You can find it at gracehammond.substack.com. And for paid subscribers, I've recently added a new Medievalish book club, which I'm really excited about. So if you would like to read a book of the past, in this case, we're starting off with Julian of Norwich's showings, um, alongside other people who are passionate and curious and um, accompanied by me. And I've read a lot of Julian of Norwich and written a lot about her and would love to guide you in it, then um, join in. It only just started. Finally, um, if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review it. It helps other folks to find the podcast and it helps me out a lot too. Thanks again for listening. This podcast will take a short hiatus during Thanksgiving and come back for the Advent series. I'm planning on discussing Advent poetry with you. I'm looking forward to it.